And they also learned that this place is an unofficial charity of the Albacore Club. Ooh. Sounds fishy. Nothing? No, I don't want to ruin the audio. This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Hello, and welcome to Better Late Than Never. This is a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late that they've been missing out by not having seen said film, or never. The movie didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. And this week, I am joined by first-time guest Cody, and we are going to be watching a movie that he has never seen before, Chinatown, from 1974. Cody, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. I don't know what's more touching, the request to have me on, or the fact that you labeled me a friend in your intro that I'm sure is pre-written. It 100% is. And of course, of course. Cody, I wanted to lead things off by asking you, this movie, Chinatown, is a personal favorite of mine for reasons we'll get into in part two, but we're watching this one at your request, and I wanted to ask why you picked it. Well, I've never seen it, uh, number mm. one. That was the first qualification that really jumped out at me. Uh, number start. two is I know that I should have seen it. I studied film production and screenwriting in college and yet somehow managed to never see this movie. It was literally in the textbooks I was reading, but I ignored all of that and never watched it for some inexplicable reason. And I figured, did people it is ever time. give you shit for not having seen that? Oh, I didn't say that out loud. I'm not, you know, I wasn't on a suicide mission. I was already awkward enough in college. Secret shame. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Okay, so I, I'm taking it then that the movie does have a bit of a reputation that you're aware of. I am familiar that it exists. I'm familiar that it is a classic. I am fascinated to find out whether it falls into the classics that I like or the classics that I don't like, uh, like Citizen Kane. Not a fan of Citizen Kane. Um, Hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Citizen Kane is a classic that you don't like. What would be one in the other category? Most others, like... Oh. The Godfather or um, Fast Five. Yeah. Fast Five is actually my favorite of that series, so it's, it's a good the choice. the best of the series, that's why. But 
Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. totally fair. Yeah. Although, wait, let me hang on. I do also really like the one that introduces Jason Statham. Mm. What is that? Six or seven? Yeah, that's that seven. Six. Uh, yeah, six is Luke Evans. Seven six is, is Luke Jason Evans. Statham. And then eight is Jason Statham on the team. And then Hobbs and right. Shaw continues that story. Yeah, we got it. Yeah. We figured it out. Our our Fast and Furious lore, we're on top of it. It's super important for American culture and culture of the world. So. It, it is. It is. Yeah. Okay, so let me try and get a sense of how much you know about the film. Number one, and I don't always ask this question, but I'm curious about it for this one. Do you know what genre it falls into? Ooh, that's a good question. I have always considered it uh, like a almost noir, I would say, hard-boiled gumshoe type of situation. Mm-hmm. Drama. Okay. And then, more generally speaking, what is it about? That's a great, even better question. Um, well, I've I've learned a thing or two after doing this for a while. Yeah. Yeah, you really got your questions dialed. Um, I have two thoughts on what it's about. It's either a precursor to the episode of The Simpsons, The Monorail. I think it's basically either that plot or... uh, Wait, wait, wait. In in what way? uh, Well, that ties into my second prediction. Okay, sorry for interrupting. No, it's okay. That there is something about... Uh, like a highway being built uh, or something like that that's endangering a neighborhood, one of those sort of plots. And the uh, character, uh, the lead, played by Jack Nicholson, I do know that, is uncovering this corruption. And yeah, so it's like a corruption in the, the local government, maybe even the state government of California. Who knows? I don't know how deep this runs. But then there's like this weird... The The Simpsons reference is about this, uh, this, this con happening about, uh, about transportation. For some reason, I have this in my head, that it is a con hmm. related to transportation. Okay. Yeah, like building the, uh, the famed L.A. subway or something. Exactly. Except, yeah. And in The Simpsons, they played it as a, a monorail, but uh, in this, it's like a highway or, a, yeah, the L.A. subway or something like that. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, you've referred to it already as potentially uh, taking place in California. Yes. Do you have anything a little bit more specific than that? Los Angeles. Okay, okay. And then also referenced was Jack Nicholson. Yes. So you know at least one actor... What other actors do you think might potentially be in Chinatown? Well, if I'm throwing darts against the wall, because I do not know. I know that there is a blonde woman. Okay. I don't know. That. I shouldn't say I know that. I, I am. Yeah, feel free to speculate all you I'm want. I'm highly confident there is a blonde woman, a white blonde woman in this movie. I can't okay. tell you who, uh, but I can tell you I believe that. I wouldn't. I would be shocked if this were true but i'm wondering if ed asner is in it i don't know he could be that's a nice guess and then or someone of his type and then 
I am going to go on a strong limb and say I am 98% sure, without any facts to back this up, that James Hong is in this. James Kong? Hong. James Hong. Famous, Amer- uh, famous character actor. James Hong. I might have to look. Might have to look him yeah, up. Yeah, you can Google that face. You'll know the face immediately. What? He's been in literally eighty movies or something. It's it's maybe even like one hundred and fifty. It's somewhere in the eighty to one hundred and fifty range. Yep, yep. Seen him in a thousand, a thousand things. things. I'm ninety eight percent sure he is in this. And if I'm wrong, that's okay. I feel okay about that. Just since I know he's in so many movies, is that the only reason why you think he's in this? Uh, I'm just curious because that, that is like a that is quite a pull. Uh, I I had to do some thinking about who I thought would in this. I I I, I prepped myself assuming this question was coming, and mm-hmm. was trying to think of actors because I did not know the year. I thought this was 1978, maybe. Uh, but you said 74. That's pretty close. Yeah. So I was thinking of someone who would be the right age. And a movie called Chinatown, uh, you know, I did factor race or at least the Hollywood opinions or uh, feelings on race into this. So, yeah, that, that's where that poll came from. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Not bad. Now, who do you think directed this movie? Uh... I don't know, you know. I that's a surprise that I don't know that off the top of my head. S- Sydney Lumet. Okay. You went with the French. I did. Okay. Uh, four years of high school French. I can't get it out. Right. Well, that's fine. Can I give three concrete things that I think are going to happen? Oh, by all means, please do. I do know that Jack Nicholson uh, gets his nose broken. Uh, okay, and he wears a little bandage. That I, you know, I've I've seen this movie poster and or the box at Blockbuster enough times to know that. Uh, I believe he wears a fedora, and I think it's set in the '30s. Those are other okay. concrete guesses about things that I believe slash no happen yeah i shouldn't have said less concrete really i just uh basically moving away from people and into other types of questions and i was gonna ask are there any quotes that you think come from this film uh that's chinatown jack or something to that effect that's chinatown jack even before thinking about that quote just now, I was also under the impression that Jack Nicholson's character was named Jack. Right. Due to it was well, contractually written in that every movie from 1965, I think, to 1987 had to have a Jack in it. Someone named He was an extremely egotistical actor and just insisted on being called his own name in all of his roles. It does make it for easier. A while. Yeah, when he was yeah. the jacker in uh that Batman movie. <laughs> oh man, the gimmick of his crimes that Batman had to stop was just absolutely horrifying. They were messy. <laughs> 
don't come any closer, <laughs> Batman. You don't want to know what's in this flower. One more pull and you'll be covered. Um. Okay, so <laughs> that's that's Chinatown, Jack. Um, are there any particular shots or images that you think you've seen from this movie? And I'll throw the poster in on this because it is an incredibly striking poster. Yeah, there's a very scripty um, or very stylicized font. Uh, not script necessarily, but very stylicized font that I can picture. Yeah. I can't describe in words as much as I can picture it. Uh, yeah, Jack Nicholson in a fedora with the, with the nose bandage. I can picture that Just very clearly. Okay. Um, Nothing else comes to mind, like uh, any particular scene that you think, like anything famous from film or cultural lore that you think might originate from this movie? This is the most sort of like abstracted question where it's like, do you think there's anything that comes from this film that might be popular culturally? Uh, your leading question hasn't quite led me to to a place. No, I mean, I'm I'm picturing maybe something in the um, in the L.A. What do you call it? The place where Point Break, he runs away, but also it's in italian job it's like the the basin or whatever oh the la river is that what it's called it doesn't look like much like a river it looks like a concrete thing yeah it doesn't always have water in it yeah i'm picturing something happening there and there is something about the cinematography that is well known about this movie i believe and can i tell you what it was nope because that was again 20 years ago and i have no recollection Oh, I wonder what it is that you heard about the cinematography. Because I do like the cinematography in this movie, but I'm curious what it was you read There's, that it's specifically focused on. It may have just been a single shot construction, um, but there is definitely an image in my mind on a page in a textbook that had a picture of something from this movie. I can picture like where it is on the page, just not what's happening in the picture. That's oh, that's how my bad. memory works. Well, uh, what, if it if it happens in the film, mark I will. Yeah, write it, down the the scene and and when we come back for part two, mention which scene it was that got called out in your textbook. And this is totally. I'm sure that I am conflating this thing with a different memory, but there's like. I feel like it was in the same chapter or in a similar section to the shot in the searchers of looking out the, the door, uh, the like out the doorway shot. I think it's the searchers uh, with John Wayne. Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, that's that's a John Wayne movie. Yeah, with the famous shot of him standing in the doorway or a woman standing in the doorway. Maybe it's the woman standing in the doorway and the mm. way that it's framed. There was something, I think, I feel like it was that section. Well, it's just funny because... Um, Normally, I don't do it ahead of time, but I just happened to this time. I watched the movie myself last night. Oh, you cheated. So okay. I've done, well, I've, I'd seen it before already. Me too. So I, I'm just kidding. Well, that's, that's real cheating. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so uh, I've done my rewatch and I remember while watching it, there was a part for me where I was like really 
like orgasming over a particular shot and like being all like oh my god the lighting in this scene is so fucking good mm-hmm. i love mm-hmm. love how this scene is set up the cinematography is so good i really wonder if it's the same one that gets that got called out in your book that would be cool it would be if cool i had such a good eye It'd be very cool it'd also be cool if i still for me. had that book which i might i have some of my college text still so i i wonder if i still have that book paid enough for it yeah right Okay, well, that's about all I've got for specific questions. Uh, do you have any predictions that you have for the movie that I haven't asked about? Or, on the uh, other hand, any hopes for the movie? I don't think that most of this movie is set in Chinatown. I think it is mostly set around Chinatown, or about mm. Chinatown. Why do you think it's called Chinatown then? Because it is about something happening with corruption that uh, is centered around events in Chinatown. But like the physical setting is not in Chinatown for most of the shots. That's my point. Okay. Other than that, I mentioned the nose break. I think that happens from a, a tough or a thug that jumps Jack makes sense yeah i think it's uh like a message sending him a message because mm. i think he's a reporter you talking about that i think that jack nicholson is a reporter uh or a private eye i guess he could be a private eye and that uh pant legs are going to be very wide in this film uh oh before we move on oh, okay. let's you get a gun to your head I, what reporter or private eye Reporter. Okay. Because he's exposing corruption. I'm going to go with that. That's This is the plan that I've crafted for myself. This is the movie that I've written called Chinatown in my head. Okay. All right, go ahead. And the pant legs are going to be very wide, mm. regardless of occupation. Probably high-waisted. A hundred percent. There will be pleats on pleats on pleats. <laughs> Big fat ties. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, unless you got anything else, then that's all I have for the prep work for part one here. You have anything that I missed? No, I think that's it. I can't wait to sound real dumb when this uh, gets played back. Oh, yeah, me too. I just love making my guests sound like idiots. I just mean I'm wrong. So that, that's I'm, I'm waiting for it to be about like a family's vacation to Chinatown, and it's a <laughs> romping comedy. With, National Lampoon's yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. And it's real racist the whole time, which I'm, I'm sure this movie is too. <laughs> uh, let's be clear about that. But we'll oh, see. man. Well, 1974. I kind of actually feel like it's bad in the 30s maybe isn't so bad in the 70s and then gets worse in the 80s it's a hundred percent yes it is like well you know this is how it was in the 30s so we can depict this how you know close to accurate because in the 70s they weren't that far off from that so they well it's it's not terrible and then now we look back on it and it is there's going to be some moments where i will take a note that says ouch well, well maybe we'll see We'll see. Sorry to spike the levels on that. <laughs> That's fine. All right. Well, in that case, 
I just want to say again that I am a big fan of this film and we will talk a lot more about that and sort of how it is I'm a fan of this film in part two and I'm looking forward to it so without much further ado let's get you watching Chinatown dude awesome can't wait that's Chinatown Jack yeah exactly that that's how it goes yeah this is the part My favorite Adam Sandler movie. That was Chinatown, Jack. <laughs> His name's not Jack. I've already learned so much. Yeah, although you were close. Very close. close. I had three out of four letters. Yeah. Usually what I do to start is just ask in a very general sense. You don't have to go into detail because we're going to get lots of details to come, but just very top level, I want to know, what did you think? Did you like it? I did like it. Uh, yes, okay. it, I did. Uh, it was, I would say I had a certain expectation for it, a certain level of, uh, of a bar that it cleared. So yes, mm. it, it did. Okay, all right, and we'll dig down into more of that as we go along but before we do i'm just going to mention a few things off the top number one is uh there's usually a very superficial amount of research that i do for these i usually do kind of like a quick wiki surf and maybe check out a couple of articles dig into the wikipedia footnotes a little bit this one i did a little bit more i there's a book on the making of the film Mm mm-hmm called The Big Goodbye by Sam Wasson. And I read maybe like two-thirds of it. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's a lot of prep. Yeah, for me. And then uh, I also watched a documentary that I'll talk about in a second. I also just wanted to mention this thing I have with this film, which is that... So I also like it. It is not my favorite favorite film it's very up there i like it very much but it's not my favorite it is however a very particular film to me in that i don't know do you watch rick and morty um not continuously well i bet no one watches it continuously that's not the right word but uh i have seen much of it but not all of it it's not appointment. Well, just in one episode, there's this concept that gets introduced, which is the idea of the Rickest Rick and the Mortiest Morty. Mm-hmm. And with this film, I kind of think about it as being the moviest movie. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It, when I think about just there being one film that encapsulates everything that there is about film to me like it's just a single movie that is synonymous with film as an artistic genre to me i would pick chinatown okay it is the moviest movie and so 
Yeah, I don't know. I think part of it has to do with the the poster of the film, mm-hmm. which has always kind of had a a lock on my mind. Some of it is like the final quote, which has always stuck with me, and then also just the movie itself. You know, noirs are very Hollywood, and yes, the genre of the film is noir. And you know, I, I don't know something about it. it's very it's a very Hollywood yes. film too. Yes. So yeah. Anyway, it was just a unique thing about the film. I felt like calling out at the start i suppose i'll also mention that because this is like a mystery film the recap might be a little bit more detailed than is typical but uh other than that i guess we'll start digging into some of the meta stuff so well can i jump in and tell you about an experience i had previous to watching this please do so i don't know if it's revealing too much behind the curtain but uh we stopped to watch the podcast, or I mean, to watch the movie, and then pick it up again. This is actually not continuous. Um, oh, oh my! I don't know if people know that or not. I don't know if you've revealed that. I think people know at this uh, point. <laughs> so I was doing dishes in between these recordings, and I said to myself, I "Believe I was watching a Tupperware or a bowl," and I said, "Wow, wait a second. I know what trope that uh, Dave was trying to lead me to. Or I think I do. Uh, Because it struck me that I did believe that it was in my brain somewhere that there was like a twin sister trope happening. Hmm. Um, That there was like the old switcheroo, like, oh, it was actually her twin sister. That was the memory I had. And then I had a very distinct memory of the lead actress walking down a set of stairs. And... Uh. Which does happen. Uh, the the actress does walk down. I know which scene it is that I, that I was thinking of when when it happened. And so I was not right. Obviously, we'll get to that. But uh, but I, that was the thought that I had. Like, oh, was that it? It was something about a, a sister or a twin sister or something like that. The other thing that I noticed when we walked away is that I have written down in my notes that I did not say that I had some guesses for the lead actress. I believe I mm-hmm. mentioned a blonde woman. And then further down in my notes, I did not catch it, but I wrote either Faye Dunaway or Jane Fonda. Uh, oh, in- interesting choice for both, actually. Yeah, I think primarily because those are the only 70s actresses I could think of at the time. But yeah, I wrote down those two names uh, there. Okay. And so I'll, re- I'll retroactively give you credit for that, particularly the Jane Fonda one, which I'll tell you why when we get to discussing the cast. Okay, yeah, those are the the, the, the two that I wrote down. Yeah, you did, um, pulling the curtain even further back, you did ask me uh, what when you realized that, what to do about it. And I was just like, I know from experience that every single podcast I've ever recorded at this, po- at this point like two or three hours later I think of something that I forgot to say or something I could have said better and I just you have to adopt a never look back mentality otherwise you're going to go completely insane it's true and I think if I hadn't been right I wouldn't have cared as much too Mm, um, yeah, but I can show you the note. I have it Uh, I I can show you visual proof later Um, I believe you I believe you Remind me again when we get to actually talking about Faye Dunaway. Okay. And and the blondness, in fact. So, to start with, however, 
the screenplay was written by Robert Town. Yes, we didn't and, discuss that in the in the first one. You asked me who the director was, but we didn't talk about the writer. So please talk about the writer. Yeah, usually don't hit on the writer very much. Uh, sometimes in part two, almost never in part one. The coming back to blondes again, but the classic joke is that the blonde goes to Hollywood and sleeps with the writer. Yeah, because the writer has no power influence in Hollywood. They're totally irrelevant well and unimportant, yes but true I, uh i hope that we talk about it a little bit just because uh someone who majored in screenwriting i have a lot of problems sorry, dude. with that uh <laughs> but that must also you must also know the truth of that right well <laughs> no blonde has ever slept with me to get into a movie but that's because i've never made a movie but yes I, I i do know the truth they're like often discredited even though it's hilarious to me because if there wasn't a writer, there isn't a movie unless you're talking about like transformers or something. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, I get it. Well, uh, it I mean, Hey, puts my defense we all have, that, we all have our crushed Hollywood dreams. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, Chinatown is considered to be one of the greatest screenplays ever written. It's taught in schools and everything like that. And it did in fact win the Oscar for best original screenplay. Significant changes were made to it, however, by Roman Polanski. The or, The original rough draft script for the movie was about 320 pages long. Which is long, I will say that. Uh, I just want to yeah, put in my screenwriting expertise. That's long. That's very long. Much yeah, too long. Yeah. It usually trans- translates translates to about uh, a minute a page. So Sometimes, yes. Be a the long the point movie, is you're yeah. usually in the 120 range. Right. So Polanski made many, many changes, enough that he probably could have gotten a screenwriting credit if he pushed for it, but he chose not to. But uh, one of the most important changes that he made was to the ending of the movie, which he made sadder. And uh, we can circle back to that catchphrase of the pod when we get to the ending. Uh, Robert Town went on to do a few more things himself. He wrote the movie Shampoo, Days of Thunder, The Firm, Mission Impossibles 1 and 2, so he works with Tom Cruise a lot. And he also wrote the sequel to Chinatown, The Two Jakes, which was directed by Jack Nicholson, widely considered to be not very good. I had no idea it existed, uh, which was most people don't shocking to me as yeah. uh, amazon is recommending other movies i might like and it says the two jakes I'm like, huh that's the character's name huh that's jack nickel wait a second is this, is this a sequel 1990 yeah, I, I, leave it alone yeah wow all right so moving on the director of the movie is roman polanski Boo. so all right to just do it off the top, uh, I am a person whose philosophy is to separate art from the artist unless it has a specific bearing on the art itself. I don't think there's a lot of value, at least in what this podcast is, in us talking about either the death of Sharon Tate or the sex abuse case unless you specifically want to, in which case we can the documentary I watched was on the sex abuse case. So I am prepared to talk about it if you would like to. My opinion on those things is that it has to be mentioned. I, I don't want to just gloss over it. I think 
I agree there are things that I watch and have enjoyed that have terrible people in and around them. And I think it has to be a part of the narrative about it because while it... uh, Yeah, I think it has to be a part of the narrative. The thing about movie making is it's so collaborative and there are so many other people involved. That's where I fall under the... I'm not into canceling a whole movie because one person involved when it's the director it's a little harder because they have such a stamp on it uh but i'm thinking particularly in sort of the pre-production part of it of like when a movie's going to come out do they shelve it you know sometimes that means people don't get the same revenue or whatnot that they would and and so it, it gets complicated I don't know if I'm making a, a coherent point, but yeah, that's sort of my opinion is I I do want to mention it. So if you want to go over a little bit to address uh, yeah, what you so, know about it, I think that that would be important and, and helpful. But okay. it's not so, good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So briefly, Roman Polanski is a Polish and French uh person who became a director he is a survivor of the holocaust he made a few films in europe following that including knife in the water repulsion and the fearless vampire killers which is a comedy in 1968 he came to the united states and was in a relationship with sharon tate who was an actress and an up-and-coming movie star she was murdered by Charles Manson in 1969 in a very famous case. Several other people were almost mur- were also mur- were also murdered at the house that she and Roman Polanski shared in Los Angeles. Polanski was away at the time in London, was briefly suspected of the killings, but it later turned out to be the Charles Manson family. It was an extremely big deal and kind of marked the end of the 1960s as a sort of uh, time of innocence in the United States and certainly in Los Angeles. After that, Roman Polanski continued to make some films, but notably darker edge to some of the material. So he had already made Rosemary's Baby, but the movie he made immediately after that was Macbeth, Uh, Very grim picture. He's made a few other films called Death and the Maiden, The Ninth Gate, The Pianist, for which he won Oscar for Best Director, and more recently, Venus and Fur, An Officer and a Spy. But he also made Chinatown, of course, uh, that comes between Macbeth and Death and the Maiden. But in the time after Chinatown, he was accused of the statutory rape of a 13-year-old girl. And the case went to court, and he pled guilty in order to get a lower sentence. And per the documentary that I watched, the judge in the case was... uh, not doing the greatest job and there's a lot of stuff going on with that you can watch the documentary yourself it's called Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired it's very good but he fled to Europe because 
the judge was going to give him uh, 50 years, uh, which he did not want to do. So he is still in Europe to this day, uh, living in alternatively France and Poland, because those are countries that do not have extradition to the United States. And he, of course, cannot come back to the United States unless he were to face uh, renewed charges on that. However, there is some suggestion that if he were to come back, the case would be thrown out because of the behavior of the judge in the original case. And that's the quick and dirty. If you want to add anything else, go ahead. Uh, no, I think that's a great recap. And like I said, I think it's important that that is a part of the narrative, especially when it comes up later in this uh, film. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, so that does, unfortunately, put an unusual context uh, about about this. The Sharon Tate stuff actually will come up uh, once or twice more, unfortunately. And I would like to leave it out as much as I can, but... It comes up from stuff I read about in the book once or twice in sort of side stories about the book. So, but other than that, I kind of don't want to sensationalize. So, sure, and and that's yeah. where I think it's important that your audience understands the context of when we say these things. Um, right. And other, right. But other than that, I mean, it's, I hope other to than focus that, on the movie. Yeah, same. Other than that, what do you think of the directing? I thought it was good. Uh, Have you seen anything else that he's made? Um, I'm trying to remember from that list that you. There's a uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, I think that's it. Really, that's the only. Okay. The pianist. I've seen Rosemary's Baby, Macbeth, Knife in the Water. This. Oh, and the Ninth Gate. I haven't seen The Pianist. Me neither. And I th- it's interesting. I think that part of that is that, well, and I don't think that come into play when I'm about not watching this movie, because as I said, I didn't even know that he's directed it. One of the things I was wrong about. To me, it was, I remember that being a part of what I learned about him very early on in my filmmaking career, since he was obviously already out of the country. And for those reasons that I remember that being a part of like jokes made about him and, and such we're, we're already a part of popular culture as I came of age in terms of watching movies and I don't know if that ever tainted why I didn't watch some of these other things or not but uh, yeah part of it too and not to delve too much deeper into this anyway the victim in the case always felt like uh, the case was exploited both by the press and by the judge for publicity and she felt like she was exploited in that way um, and would have preferred if the case had just kind of gone away. So um, that was something I found noteworthy. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I think this is my favorite thing by him that I've seen. I tend not to actually love his work. I I usually find it a little cold. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby had been really hyped for me. I didn't love it. The Ninth Gate, I think, is genuinely bad. Knife in the Water, I've seen more recently, and I think is incredibly good technically, but I didn't love, and I think that kind of, and then Macbeth, I actually think is quite good, but is very, very grim and maybe a little overlong. 
but that that's sort of a thing that I keep getting with him is that the movies are really, really technically good, but I don't feel them very much. The exception being this movie, which is the one where it kind of all comes together for me. So I found myself while I was watching it thinking about what if someone else had tackled this? I found myself thinking about contemporary directors because I, I while I thought it was well-directed, it didn't blow me away in that way. Like the, the things that were interesting to me were more the other side of that technicality, the lighting, the the cinematography, but in terms of pacing, in terms of getting certain performances from different characters and things, I I was wondering. I was I just had it in my head like what if David Fincher took this script and 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 did it? Like what how would that be different? And well, Fincher is usually a little cold too. A little cold, exactly. So it was definitely along those similar themes. But I, I just found myself wondering what would ha- what would have happened. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I think it helps that in this movie he's blessed with a couple of really strong actors yes. who are able to give him great performances, which is a good time to turn to the cast. So. We've got Jack Nicholson playing J.J. Jake Giddes in what I learned while researching this was his first leading role. Really? Yeah. And then there's Faye Dunaway as Evelyn Cross Mulray. The person that the studio wanted was Jane Fonda. Oh, ding, ding, ding. I get two points for that then. Yeah. And in fact, they they used Jane Fonda as sort of like a bargaining chip when negotiating with Faye Dunaway. Hmm. They're, it, when they're arguing over salary, they're like, we got Jane Fonda. She said she'd do it. All right, yeah. Yeah, so, it, that turned out to be a lie, just a tactic. Jane Fonda passed on the movie. So were those the only two actresses in the 70s? Because it's weird that I nailed that <laughs> then, uh, unless they're the only two. In a... At least for that stature. Okay. Yeah. To yeah. play, They were the only ones I saw considered for this role. And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, this isn't cast, but I don't know if you saw at the top, but the producer for this is uh, 1970s Hollywood super producer Robert Evans. I did see that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Faye Dunaway... Um, she came on to do this. She hadn't done anything really notable since Bonnie and Clyde at this point. So she was looking for something good, but she had a lot of behind-the-scenes conflict with Polanski. When was Bonnie and Clyde? Seven years prior to this. So, well, because uh, she does Thomas Crown Affair, correct? Seven. What year is Thomas That's Crown 68. Affair? That's 68. Which is partially why I put her on the list is because I love that movie, and I was like, oh, that's generally the same era so i could see that all right all right all right yeah but um the she and polanski fight a lot in the background of this film and so uh it's uh, another interesting thing uh you know going on behind the scenes in this you got justin houston as noah cross uh john justin oh yeah john john houston and uh, then a few small characters in the background. You got it right on your guess for a small role. 
was it uh james, james hong james hong uh nailed that one i'm taking that one to my what grave. a pull uh that's what a pull i was shocked when you said that because i i can you know i i take good credit for the faye dunaway and the jane fonda of it all i think that that's incredible i'll hang a championship banner for that but pulling the 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 butler out that uh yeah i'm, I'm gonna make t-shirts for that one yeah, it's funny, too, because when I, I had just done my own rewatch and I'd recognized him and been like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. But I hadn't known I hadn't remembered his name. Yeah. And so when you said it, I was like, oh, fuck. That's right. <laughs> That's his name. Yeah, I, uh, I was looked very it up impressed on IMDb is one one of the few things of research I did do in the meantime. Uh, Four hundred and forty one acting credits. Damn, he's uh, a for, regular Christopher Lee. Yeah, it's so when I said eighty, to, I think I said eighty to one hundred and fifty. I was uh, off by about a little off, a little at off. least a quarter. Also, quickly, Burt Young plays Curly. He's better recognized as Paulie from Rocky. Yes. Diane Ladd played Ida Sessions, and then Roman Polanski himself plays the Man with the Knife. The uh, I call him the quote tough with a polka dot bow tie. Yeah. That famous tough hey there, look. Kitty cat. Yeah. Also, I you're forgetting that. someone in the credits. Uh, I don't oh. know how you feel about the James Bond franchise, but I'm a, I'm a fan. There is a James Bond uh, character in this. Mister Wint from Diamonds Are Forever is uh, yeah, Glover. What, what's his first name? Um, John Glover? Yep. Father of Chris, Bruce Glover. Bruce Glover, that's right. Bruce Glover, father of Crispin Glover, and uh, Mr. Wint, one of the in, most incredible henchmen in the James Bond series. Diamonds Are Forever? Yes, Diamonds Are Forever, yeah. He, he plays yeah. uh, one of the one of the J.J. J, 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 Jack, John Jr. gets his uh, associates. Wow. Much less creepy in this movie than in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. Uh not my favorite Bond film though. Oh no, it's not like it's good. It's but it it's a fun one if you're in for that part of it. All right. Well, I think that's enough meta. It's time we uh hit the recap unless you got anything that you researched you want to toss out. Um no, I think anything else will come up as we go through. But... Yeah, same. So all right, so movie begins, and right off the bat, we get this really nice noiry music by Jerry Goldsmith. The movie originally had this very avant-garde score that apparently nearly ruined it just right from the get-go, and this score that they have in the actual film is one of the big Robert Evans contributions to the film. And it's all, it just the whole thing from the very beginning feels very Hollywood. And we get our first actual scene scene, and we see right away that the private eye business is not a pretty one. You've got Jake Giddis just hunting down cheating wives. It's an ugly business. We then get to see that a Mrs. Mulray is there to see him. She's also there because of a cheating spouse. She thinks her husband is seeing another woman. 
Jake, of course, suggests to let sleeping dogs lie. He often finds that these things are better to leave alone. But she insists, so he takes on the case to follow the husband, who is named Hollis Mulray, the chief engineer for L.A. Water and Power. That's going to make the case very expensive, but money does not matter in this case. All right, interesting. They start the stakeout. They go to a, like, municipal L.A. town meeting that Mulray is at. Love that scene. Yeah. They're talking about the Alto Vallejo Dam Project. And Mulray is against it. Uh, There was some kind of huge accident previously when the Vanderlip Dam gave way. And this dam is just as shitty. I learned a lot about dams in that scene. Uh, that was excellent writing uh, by Mr. Town there. I, in that like two minutes, learned so much about dams. Well, in point of fact, this whole Vanderlip Dam accident is based on some kind of real accident that actually happened. Yeah. I mean, this whole movie is based on the actual like scandalous founding of L.A., but the accident too. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I saw that but, and I was like. Oh. Great. Now I'm now I'm all good on dams. I, I I know why this is a problem. Yeah. But not only that, but good good acting from the guy too, because the whole time I'm watching him, there's just one thing going through my mind, and that thing is, what a nerd. Yeah, that's true too. The guy is a huge dork. Yeah, huge nerd. So the meeting gets broken up when some guy brings his sheep in, and. He's complaining about something about people stealing water from the valley, and he's got no water for grazing my sheep. And that's Ron Howard's father. Get the fuck out, really? I believe so. I think that was something I saw in my research. Ah, cool. What I like about this, and this is one of the reasons why the screenplay is, in fact, so fucking good, is that all of this stuff about the drought and the, there being a lack of water, it's there the whole time through this whole movie just kind of laying in the background in, you know, small moments and, like, little things that happen and single lines throughout the whole thing so that it keeps popping up so when it all ties together at the end, it has been there the whole time. Absolutely, yeah, they... He does a great job of laying the foundation there to, to pull yeah, from later. It's, it's, it's there throughout the whole thing. Surprisingly for a public official, Mulray hears this guy's complaint and actually follows it up. Fucking weird. And he starts following something up anyway because he's going all over the place. And, you know, he goes to a beach. He stays there. So, of course, Jake has to stay there. And he's just hanging out when all of a sudden the pipe that Jake is next to starts going off. Tons of water starts pouring out of it and Mulray sees it. So Jake goes back to his car and like I just said, there's a flyer on his car. What does the flyer say? L.A. is dying of thirst. Just little stuff mentioning it through the whole thing. There's also a fun little noir detective trick that he does in the scene, which is he takes out a watch and puts it under Mulray's car tire so that when he leaves, he breaks the watch, and that's how they know what time he left. 
I love that. Cool. I, I love that trick. I, I noted that as well. He's a glove box full of pocket watches, and I thought that was very clever, very fun. Yeah, it's cheap way to do it instead of buying yourself a GPS. So, following the guy, they discover he's been to three more reservoirs. The guy's got water on the brain. He also got in an argument with somebody who later turns out to be Noah Cross. They only heard one thing, which was apple core. They don't know what it means. But one of the guys, his assistants, finally gets something. He's in Echo Park meeting with a girl. Now they got some dirt. They're out in a rowboat. They get pictures. They track him even to an apartment complex. They get more pictures. A little while later, though, the pics hit the tabloid press, and the guy's reputation is completely destroyed. And it's actually shocking to Jake that this happened. And, you know, it says something about him, actually, that he's so affronted about his, you know, business dignity. Like when the guy gives him shit at the barbershop. Yeah. Oh, but um, he also gets that joke, that joke about having sex like a Chinaman, which I think goes to a little bit about what you were saying about some things aging a little uh, poorly. You know, for the times. I also didn't understand it. I put on my most racist hat, and I could yeah. not even figure out exactly what uh, what the point I, was. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, and what I believe the joke is, is that it is meant to imply that the wife has had sex with Chinese people before. Hence, uh, she okay. she knows what Chinese people have sex like. Yeah, and that's bad. That's so bad. okay. All right. I was like, I don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was lost. I, was like, I get how this is setting up the dramatic irony of not knowing that. Uh, oh yeah, it, it also she's it sets up her, the classic. But, she's right behind me, isn't she? Yeah, and I. Yeah. But yeah, okay. Thanks for explaining that. That's why people come to this podcast for this breakdown of yeah, racist sure. jokes. I, no guarantee that's correct. No, it's but, better know. than I got. I have an incredibly powerful gift of empathy. It even works on racists. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So he goes back to the office and the real Mrs. Mulray is there just in time to be offended by his dirty racist joke. And. I sh- we should also add, by the way, that not only is this movie from the 70s, but it ta- it you were correct, it takes place in the 30s. So, yes, things the pant were legs different are back wide. Then. I did check that they out. Pant legs are wide. Fashion's great, though, throughout the whole movie. I have lots of notes about the suit that we're probably not going to get into, but uh, of, of uh, Jake's wardrobe. Really into it. Jake and Mrs. Mulray. Yes. I-, I think Faye Dunaway looks fantastic yes. in this movie. Oh, my God. So, Mrs. Mulray is there, and she is not a happy camper because she is not the same person who hired him. She dresses him down really fast. She gives him the old, you like publicity, don't you? And, uh, you know, basically says, I'm going to sue your pants off, and then your leaves. very wide pants off. Yes. <laughs> They're going to fall off real easy because they are not tight leg. No. But that leaves the question, who the fuck hired him then? In the age of the internet, this whole plot just falls apart immediately. Because uh, Jake just Googles 
this uh, famous person. Mm. And, oh, that's not her. Okay. All done. Yeah, that's he'd be a bad detective. So. <laughs> bad detective falling for that now, yes. That's why you got to set all these noirs back in the exactly. uh, back in the 30s. Yeah. You don't get cool tricks like the watch thing now. You just log into Tesla and right. see where the car is. Exactly. Right. Okay, so yeah, he scams his way into Mulray's office with some more noir trickery, and the photo on Mulray's desk confirms which one is in fact the actual wife. And while he doesn't find anything else interesting, Mulray seems to be missing. So he goes to talk to Mulray at his house. It's a nice house. Real nice house. It is a real nice house. And that's where we first meet uh, Han, the butler. And I was like, shit, it's that guy. Khan. Is it Khan? I believe or it's Khan. Khan. His character name. Oh, and I got the Wikipedia page open. We're going to settle this. Da, 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 da. You're right. You are right. It's Khan. Khan! Khan! <laughs> He's hanging out. He notices something shiny in the pool, but before he can check that over, Mrs. Mulray shows up, and she is way easier, way easier to win over than expected. She just drops the lawsuit immediately. Yeah. Just... Yeah, no problem. Great. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to let this go because he doesn't like being made a fool of. You know, someone turned him into a joke. He doesn't like it. He wants to find out who's behind this. But she really wants him to drop it. And thus we have kind of the central tension of the movie because she wants him to let it go and he wants to follow it up. Anyway, so he gets a tip that sends him to a reservoir. He meets up with an old buddy still on the force, Lou, the detective. They've got a history dating back to their days in Chinatown. Hmm. And then as they're catching up, they find Mulray dead in the reservoir. Obviously, what happened here is that he fell in, got knocked unconscious, and drowned. Yeah, open shut. Now, it's a little ironic, don't you think, that in the middle of the middle of a drought, the water commissioner drowns? Only in L.A. It, it, it raised some questions for me. I'll say that. And this, someone should be pointing this out. Yeah, but no one, no one seems to be curious about it. Weirdly enough, too, a homeless guy also drowned on the same day in the L.A. River in a drainage pipe. And nobody seems to think that's weird. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, we had mentioned the L.A. River in, in, in part one. Yeah, we did. And I know, you know, you you mentioned how it doesn't really look like a river, but... Um, well, that's not you know, what that, I was thinking of. Uh, so I, What were you thinking of? So I have to now do some research that I didn't do in the meantime. Uh, but, you know, in... Uh, in all those movies, there's a big concrete basin that people like drive cars in, and yeah, that's that you let like in Greece. Yeah, do they do or in movies? Terminator Two. Yeah, or in um, that is the L.A. River Point Break or whatever. So they just built concrete up around the part. Yeah, that we saw I think in this so. Movie. They sort of like turned. They like made a channel. They made it into a channel. Okay. 
then yes okay um, i was picturing that but i was picturing the modern version not the not this riding a horse with a kid version right yeah well sp- speaking of the kid the kid talks to jake and he's he mentions that water comes flowing into the river every night but every night a different part yeah and that my friend is how you build a good mystery yes because what the fuck is going on i could tell you i saw the rest of the movie you want me to tell you what happens no no no, okay. no, no, no. Okay. You're getting, okay. we're, we're keeping we're keeping the audience in suspense okay. Okay. all right so jake goes back to the reservoir and here comes the water it's actually kind of easy to see how someone could theoretically drown in that reservoir given yeah. what happens to jake but uh also here comes some goons including hold it there kitty cat I love, I mean, I know Roman Polanski is foreign, so, it, you know, I don't want to just, like, make fun of the way foreign people talk, but it's still, the way he talks always stood out to me. It's like, you're a nosy fella, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellas, don't you? Yeah, he's playing they the lose part of noses. the American from the 30s while he is a non-American in the 70s. It's it's very well done. I I, I love it. And then we also get uh, the slam cut to Jake with the bandage, which is actually a pretty fun visual gag, I think, because he looks ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, so, uh, again, another one I was wrong on. He's not punched by a tough. It is not a broken nose. Mm-mm. but uh, It is a sliced nose. Sliced. But close, close. He gets a call from Ida Sessions. Who the fuck is that? She says that she was the one pretending to be Mrs. Mulray. And I love his reaction in this scene where he's just like slouched back, taking it easy. And then all of a sudden he sits bolt upright and he's just like, shut the fuck up. She tells him to check the obituaries. Doesn't highlight anything more than that. But he doesn't know what it means. So he goes back to Miss Mulray. He's like, what's the deal with you? Because... You're, you find out your husband's cheating on you, right? And you weren't really that upset. And she's like, okay, fine. I knew about the affair, but I was cheating on him too, you see? Yeah, that's it. And he was like, uh, what's your maiden name? She says, Cross. And he says, okay, cool. By the way, your husband was murdered probably because someone is dumping all this water for some reason in the middle of this drought. Okay, heavy. Did you have any idea what was going on at this point? Yes. Uh, I did not know who was exactly behind it, uh, but I wrote very early on, oh, this is a thing about natural resources and who controls the natural resources and the benefits from that. Um, yeah, the movie tips gonna be the about... water hand. Go ahead. Yeah, and so when, once the f- I first saw uh, when when Jake was in the pipe and the water came out, I was like, okay, so water's being dumped. That's uh, that's bad. Yeah, yeah. It tips the water hand pretty early, but I think it does that wisely in order to hide the second shoe to fall later. Yeah. Because that one I don't see coming. Um, so Jake does another noir trick, which is irritate the shit out of the secretary until she lets you in. 
and also gets just into... called a man trick. <laughs> yes, exactly. Have you deployed that ever in your life? No, I wish. I don't know if it works anymore. I think nowadays they just call security right. and throw you yeah, out. People are a little bit more, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work on self-advocacy. And I think if that uh, secretary just had a little bit stronger self-advocacy. Uh, or right. You know, calling her toots and patting her on the bum won't get you quite as far no, these not, days not as in 1937. Right. Well, anyway, so he notices hanging on the wall. He's like, hey, uh. All these pictures of Noah Cross, did he work for the water department? No, no. He owned the water department. Oh. So it turns out that it was Noah Cross, along with his partner, Mr. Mulray, who made the water department public. Okay. Jake threatens the new head of the water department into letting him know that some of this dumped water is going to help irrigate some orange grows in the valley. Just helping him out a bit. Sounds sketch, but maybe worth checking out. Back to Mrs. Mulray. She wants to hire Jake probably just because she wants him to drop this whole thing, but whatever. She's got obscure reasons at the moment. He asks her why she married her father's business partner. And he also brings up her dad. And I don't know if you noticed, but the second her dad comes up, her body language completely changes. She instantly lights a new cigarette, even though she already has one lit. And it is like such a tell. Yes, uh, I did. I didn't know why, but I at that time, because I wasn't sure... Again, I had sort of had this theory that there was like a maybe a twin sister thing happening, and so I wasn't sure mm. if there was a something about the communication between the sisters and the father or the father, you know. But uh, but yeah, I did clock that. Uh, yeah, the the new cigarette thing is is a very good move, and, and Jake calls it out. He does, but it continues through the movie that like just any time the dad comes up, she um just like folds in. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. It's good Good acting. Excellent performance. So between the two men, it turns out they had a falling out, not over the girl, but over taking the water department public and the Vanderlip Dam accident. So it's probably time to go see Noah Cross. And what a courtly Southern gentleman he is. He is indeed. I love the, the subtleness of this like sort of, menacing like i'm gonna try to find out what you are trying to find out while doing so under the guise of being very kind and friendly um you can tell that cross is fishing for so for, for what what jake knows and that's why he offers him the the ten thousand also i also like though that he does this little power play where he keeps calling him gits even though he knows damn well what his name actually is. Yes, I did read uh, that behind the scenes, unsubstantiated, so this may not be true, but that uh, Houston didn't couldn't say the name correctly. and so they. Oh, is that true? Uh, they I, kept messing it up, and then they left it in. 
Uh, okay. Well, it works because that was that was what I pulled from the movie. I, I for my own sake in my reading, uh, he was occasionally um, not sober on set. Sure. So, you know. But yes, I, mat- I, I, the stories match. I agree. It did fit, you know, and it was a. It, it is a powerful, a power move, as you said, to to Gotta mispronounce the name. Yeah. So he threatens Jake a little bit too. And he also has this one killer line, which I love. Of course I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. It's true. I love that line as well. I spent a few moments thinking about it, like, check, check, check. Okay, all right. Yeah, right? It's it's incredibly true. It's a nice bit of writing. And... One thing, too, that stands out is that he seems obsessed with finding this girl, uh, Mulray's squeeze. He, he And there's really no reason why he should be interested in this. Like, he offers Jake double what his daughter's paying for his services. And he takes the time to say that his daughter is a deeply disturbed girl, by the way. But uh, he wants Jake to find the girl. What the fuck for? Did you have any theories at this point? Um, I did not. I was sort of... Yeah, I did not have any theories. I was operating under the... Can't wait to see what this clearly evil person uh, has in store. Why Why does he want the... The girlfriend, is he going to use this as some sort of leverage for something or, or whatnot? Turns out to be even more evil than he would have Absolutely. Thought, I did not expect yeah. just how evil. Right. Okay, so off to the Hall of Records. Turns out that a whole lot of the valley has just been sold right in the last few weeks, and for really cheap, too. And we also get the very truthful uh, adage put to... Uh, good use when in doubt rip it out and from the biggest book of all time yeah. i mean the book is the size of jack nicholson's torso as he's taking that out all right so jake goes to follow up on this and holy shit there are cowboys guarding the orange groves there sure are that was fun it turns out they are guarding the land because the people from the water department has been sabotaging them. Giddos gets knocked out here, and the film fades out with him. And this is something that's actually kind of notable for a few reasons. One is, just as a fun little uh, behind-the-scenes thing, Jake getting knocked out was one of the first things this whole scene in the orange grove this was the first thing they shot on the first day of filming and they spent 40 minutes getting the shot of jack nicholson getting knocked out because they had to get the shot of the ant crawling on his face just right and so they kept redoing the take so that they could replace the ant did you even notice the ant uh i didn't notice at least yeah, well, that's how much of a perfectionist Polanski was on this movie. I did notice that Jack Nicholson goes straight for the ball shot in that fight. Like, 
<laughs> well, rightly so. He was getting his ass kicked. He sure was. He just crushes that dude right in the nuts, uh, which I thought was good Good private detective work. The other thing, though, is that um, the film fades out with him getting knocked out, and it fades back in when he regains consciousness. And what you notice with that, and I don't know if you noticed this during the film, but... um, I did. I know exactly what you were about to say. Oh, do you want to say it? No, go for it. Okay, because you you can if you want to. You can uh, you can take this. Just how much from his perspective this movie is? Is that what you were about to say? Yeah. In fact, the entire movie is from Jake's subjective point of view. So at, at no point in the movie do we ever know anything that he doesn't know. The whole thing unfolds from his perspective. Uh, and this is actually one of the big changes that Polanski made from the original Town Script. Town Script had a more omniscient perspective, but Polanski changed it to be uh, the subjective Gittes point of view. Jake Gittes is in every single scene. So we I was wondering are that. Him. I didn't have the written down as I was thinking about that. Because, yeah, I did notice it's very much his story of he's finding out things the same pace that we are. Right, and yeah. uh, we, for all intents and purposes, we are him, and yeah. we only learn things as quickly as he does, and that uh, that sort of matches much better um, hard-boiled detective fiction, like the literature of it, and also helps kind of deepen the mystery elements of the movie. And just one thing I was noting, you know, just framing-wise and 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 shot structure-wise. I didn't clock that he was in every scene, but, you know, the shots of other things are usually from his perspective. Uh, going back to when he was at uh, the Mulray's house, when she walks in, he's turning, then we're turning, you know, like all those mm-hmm. cuts. He is the focus of most of these scenes, just in the actual framing. You know, we're sort of moving along with him. We don't even get yeah. ahead of him when we're entering a place or or whatever. Like, one of the few times is when Evelyn Mulray is behind him in the, the racist joke scene, that that is like one of the few times that we know what he doesn't know. Um, yeah. And so interesting. Yeah. It's actually surprisingly rare for a movie to behave this way. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, not something that people necessarily really consciously notice too. Uh, Red letter media has a good term for this effect though of where it has a subconscious effect on your intake of the film where you don't necessarily consciously notice it which is um you may not have noticed it but your brain did yes absolutely yeah well anyway so he regains consciousness and evelyn is there and jake has started putting everything together he explains it to her the whoever is doing this they're ruining the land buying it for peanuts and then whenever this dam is built they will re-irrigate it and have incredibly valuable land the dam will irrigate the land for them then he thinks back to the obituary tip he got from Ida Sessions and he notes that they are buying the land in the name of dead people so they go check out this nursing home where the guy lived the one of the dead people that they discover and um number one evelyn is very good at playing along with him during this scene 
And there's a fun little bit where he asks the proprietor, do you accept people of the Jewish persuasion? I'm sorry, no, we don't. Oh, good, neither does my dad. I love that line. I underlined and highlighted it. It is, I think, watching this now in particular, I also wonder how different it was to hear that line in 1974. Uh, but it is it a real funny. reversal. It's a real twist uh, line in our, in our very PC days right now. Uh, and such oh, a... I still think it's funny. Oh, it's funny. It's I, I enjoyed it. That's why I wrote it down. Uh, I think it's funnier. That's why I was wondering, like, is it funnier now even because it's such a a, a switch or a reversal? Yeah, maybe it's it, yeah, maybe it's weirder just to have someone openly admit that like we are not an establishment that accepts Jews. Exactly, like the whole thing. You're like, what? Okay, yeah, all right. Uh, you know, this is you pre- gotta Holocaust. keep that on the down low. This is pre-Holocaust, um, so. Well, yeah, I guess contemporary to uh, like yeah, thirty-seven. But, um, it's uh, it's it's gearing up. It's yeah, it, it, but yeah, and also what a. I don't know why I never thought about using this anti-Jewish tack to gain entry to a to a, an establishment. So I'll definitely uh, have to add that to my repertoire. Part of the club, you know, harass the secretary, insult Jews. I'm learning. I'm learning a whole new toolbox of how to gain entry to places. Dude, you will be in the top tier of the elite in no time. In some prison somewhere, yeah. <laughs> um, so they go in and they realize that every name on the list of buyers is in this fucking nursing home. And they also learn that this place is an unofficial charity of the Albacore Club. Ooh, sounds fishy nothing no i don't want to ruin the audio (laughs) i didn't want to spike it too much i I get it though i got what you're putting down albacore is a type of uh fish all right yeah Yeah, yeah. so i got yeah i got that so they find out that someone wants to talk to you and they barely escape without getting their noses cut off and Nothing like a little excitement to get the motors running. It's true. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, fish. Oh, no, we're not talking about fish anymore? No, I'm talking about some nice jazzy saxophone. Yes. Yeah, the the main characters, Jake Giddis and Evelyn Mulray, they do it. Yeah, this is a precursor to Jack Nicholson's role as the Jacker that we talked about in part one. (laughs) <laughs> uh yes yes indeed um they have this nice little bit where he notices something black in the green part of her eye so can cute. i say when i was still under the impression that this was maybe a twin sister situation mm. i thought that was coming back uh like, okay yeah, yeah he's noticed the thing that he's gonna not notice the next time that then is going to create uh the revelation that there is a a a twin sister happening that's a really nice observation i would have liked that uh i would have also i also could not help but think of uh daniel Bruhl's baron zemo from the marvel cinematic universe meeting steve rogers for the first time and he says there's a little bit of green in those blue eyes oh perhaps i'm willing to bet that was a reference i wonder if it was yeah Uh, because he notices something about the Captain America's eyes. 
Also, probably my favorite villain from the MCU, by the way. He's classic. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the in point of fact, the black and the green part of the eye is a reference to uh, Robert Town's girlfriend, who has that. Uh, interesting. But as they're becoming intimate, Jake opens up to her about Chinatown. Yes. Uh, he starts talking about his past in Chinatown, where he worked for the DA. Doing what? as little as possible and that is an incredibly famous exchange yeah. to come from this movie and it goes to the idea behind this film that chinatown is not a place but it is a state of mind chinatown is a place where you cannot accomplish anything the bad guys win and you as one of the little people can never make any difference for the positive that's what chinatown is absolutely yeah i love that scene or that exchange and it does such a good job of creating this feeling like we don't spend much time in chinatown it's not about that it's this yeah this idea and this feeling that you have of of sort of hopelessness yeah, the whole world can be Chinatown. Yeah. And um, it's a really tour de force piece of writing. It is. It's so good. And the way they yeah. tie it back in later, which we'll get to. Yeah. yeah. They're interrupted by a phone call, and Mrs. M really, really has to go after this call. Don't be suspicious about it, sweetie. I just really have to go really suddenly. It's always not suspicious when you highlight how suspicious it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, you, a private investigator, should not read anything into this, but I've really got to go <laughs> really suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> Just stay here. Right. I'll come back later. This is another point in the movie, too, where he mentions her father and her body language just, like, closes right up. Anyway, she promises that she'll explain everything later. Not now, no. but she will explain later. Ugh. So, obviously, he follows her. We get some more noir tricks. He kicks out her, I think, her rear taillight. I thought it was the side side mirror. Side mirror? Okay. I, I wasn't sure. I was watching the movie with my dad because he loves this movie. Uh, I thought it was the side mirror. He thought it was the rear taillight. Oh, but, I have uh, in my notes, kicks out side mirror, question mark? He said rear tail light to make her easier to follow in the dark. Mm. So he could ID the car if there were multiple cars in the dark. But it looked like the side mirror to me, too. So it may have just been a car uh, thing. That's what also what. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't know why he did that. And it was never really didn't. There was no follow up. Yeah. Obviously, it's some kind of noir trick, but yes. what specifically it was, we'll have to put a pin in. So, she's at a house, and who's at the house? It's Hollis Mulray's girl. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. What the fuck is going on here? It all looks sketchy as fuck. He confronts her in the car outside. I want to call out the director of photography, uh, who they actually replaced uh, early on in the movie but ultimately was john alonzo this scene where the two of them are in the car i love this shot 
mm. where the two of them are sitting together in the, the car, the lighting in it I think is incredible because it's just got the the kind of like rhombus of light lighting up not even their full faces but just their eyes as they talk to each other it's incredibly noir and just incredibly striking and it's one of those like you know they don't make them like this anymore moments for me I just I, I was really curious if this was the shot that was in your textbook We'll never know. I, I didn't find it. Oh, that's too bad. I didn't clock right. any scene in here that was um, okay. the the one that I was thinking of. Yeah. Sorry. There's well, no, yeah, there's no, <laughs> no big reveal coming. Sorry, audience, if that's what you've been waiting for. That's cool. All right. Well, I love the shot anyway. It's a beautiful shot. Um, it is. Yeah, so well done. He confronts her with this. He says he's going to go to the cops, but she finally... Is like, okay, okay, I'll confess. She's my sister. And he's like, all right, she's your sister, whatever. And then he goes home. And of course, he finally takes a shower, finally gets into bed, and of course, the fucking phone rings. Yep, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. Ida Sessions is waiting for him, apparently. And he's like, what the fuck? So he goes to Ida Sessions' house. The door's been forced. The body's on the floor. There's also a drip. And I liked that little touch because uh, it makes it so, at least up until the end, uh, all of the deaths in this movie have a nice little connection to water somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Either through drowning or through this drip here from the faucet. And... um, the cops are there. And so they give him a hard time, but they also revealed that Mul- Hollis Mulray had salt water in his lungs, which was not the water at the reservoir where they pulled him out, which is weird. Yes. He goes back to the house. Everything's all packed up. Looks like they're taking off. He fishes that thing he saw out of the pond, and it's a pair of glasses probably Mulray's glasses and it just so happens that this pond is salt water so Jake thinks he's put the whole thing together he finds everyone at the girls hideout house they're all packed up and ready to go catch a 530 train he calls his buddy Lou from the cops to meet him there and he has his big confrontation with Evelyn but it doesn't go quite as planned She just keeps denying everything. So he has to slap the truth out of her. She keeps saying that the girl is her sister. Then she has the audacity to say that she's her daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. And she's my daughter. The other shoe has dropped. When she was 15 year old, she and her father conceived a daughter. What did you think of this? I had a lot of thoughts. Uh, (laughs) Number one, just to get it out of there, like this is where the Roman Polanski of it all made me cringe. 
or do more than cringe, actively shiver. Well, you know he didn't write this, right? Yes. No, I know. Um, no, that would be way more messed up if, if he's writing about it. But it's in, you know to be involved in any way, and then you know filming that scene, and then anyway, yes. Um, still, just the the meta ness of that made me feel not great. Mm. Uh, it is also. You know, this idea of uh, slapping a woman usually uh, get, gets the truth out of them. Uh, such an antiquated idea. So popular mm-hmm. of an idea, too, uh, at, at the time. It was really interesting. I also found the whole thing hilarious. Uh, because it seems so over the top in that way. So I had the all of these running emotions where like really well done, really emotional scene. Like watching Faye Dunaway's performance of that scene is like it's an incredible job by her to the way that she mm-hmm. lays it out, the way that she is holding on to these truths, the fact that they are one truth and just releasing fraction by fraction until it all floods out at the end it's beautiful and incredible acting Mm -hmm. the fact that it's punctuated by a slap every time felt farcical to me because Mm -hmm. I'm watching it in 2021 so I, I had those sort of conflicting emotions about the whole thing but I also did not see it coming uh, so, uh, you know, as we've, I've said 17 times, I was thinking it was maybe a twin sister situation. I knew that the girl was not a twin once you've been revealed, but I was still trying, I was still not in the know yet that it was something like that. And so it was a, it was a real good reveal. It made a lot of things click into place. And also a horrifying one. Too. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I don't know if I hinted at that enough. It was terrifying. Yeah. And... The first time I saw this, I was quite a bit younger, and so uh, it it was sort of like the first time I'd ever realized that such a thing was possible, and I remember just being like, "Ew!" Yes, it's a it's it is you with a capital E and W. It's right. So yeah. repulsive um, and yeah, so heartbreaking too for for her. I mean, it immediately recontextualizes the whole character the whole arc, the whole relationship with her husband and yeah, the scenes of him early on with the daughter, sister. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is one of those moments where everything sort of clicks in your place. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. This changes everything. Look how evil cross is even more than, you know, the standard bad guy that we were thinking he might've been, you know, so yeah, the movie plays differently the second time you watch it. I'm sure, yeah. This was the part, though, that I was actually suggesting that you may have heard about before. That, you know, I don't think I was leading too... I hopefully wasn't leading too hard, but I was curious if you'd heard of it 
or seen it referenced before because this this scene's a little zeitgeisty. It's been referenced and parodied in a few other things. Uh, not for nothing in Animaniacs. Yeah. Uh, so I hadn't thought of that until you just said that. Like, oh, yeah, that does sound familiar. Yeah. So anytime there's a scene with um, a slapping one answer to another, that is a reference to this. Yeah. So anyway, it's kind of one of the big scenes from this movie, and it is pretty jaw-dropping. It is. But it's not the only one. So we move on. That is the scene where she comes down the stairs, by the way. Um, it is. That I have in my head for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but the, the dark clothing, the dark stairs, the framing of it. Um, something about that. I don't know where I've seen it. Uh, but that was in my head. So Evelyn couldn't care for the girl at 15. So the daughter had to be re- raised in Mexico explains why she speaks spanish which she has been doing through most of the film and uh you know she couldn't be a mother to her obviously uh but now that she's older she wants to take her back to mexico and actually be with her in that role so that's what they're leaving to do also when confronted with the glasses uh she notes that uh they aren't her husband's because hollis didn't wear bifocals so jake's whole theory is blown up he sends them off to avoid the heat with their butler con to stay at his place in chinatown he cleverly loses the cops by going to curly's house and then he confronts cross at the mulray house he uh says outright the girl is with her mother and he gets Cross to pull out some bifocals. But Cross is an evil piece of shit, and he is fine with all of it. And he will make L.A. fine with all of it by just making the valley part of L.A. And everyone will just move on. And he's right. Nobody worries about this shit now. Yeah. Yeah, so... Anyway, he forces Jake at gunpoint to bring them to the girls. And this actually, I think, is, for me, the big flaw in the movie, because I don't understand why he brings them to the right place. Like, why not just take them for a ride? He knows that they're only killing time before they're going to get out of there. Why not just drive them around to the wrong spot at this point in the movie? Which He's, he's the only one who knows where they are. And he's already done that. Like exactly. when he takes them to Curly's. Yeah. Why did he bring them there? I don't understand this one part. I, this I was, throws me. Yeah, I don't know. I was wondering. It sort of goes back to this question I had about whether the lieutenant is a good cop. Um, or whether they're. Yeah, I don't know. Because he's already set up this. Like, I don't totally trust this situation by misdirecting the cops already so if he hadn't done that previously you would think okay so he trusts this guy from his time in chinatown or or something i don't know but clearly that's not the case so i don't know either it seems like yeah there could have been 
some delays and yeah i mean 15 minutes and it would have been a completely different ending yes is that the ending that has changed you said they changed the ending or is it yeah. just the so let's go through what okay. happens and i'll tell you yeah. what the original ending was okay. so Jake brings them there, and everybody is collected at the place in Chinatown. Them, the cops, and the women trying to escape. And everything goes to shit. They try to get Evelyn to just surrender and tell the cops everything, but she very correctly shouts out, he owns the police. So she pulls a gun and tries to escape in the car, but the police fire at her, and I just have such a strong memory of this ending. The gunshot, the car slowing down, the honking, the screaming girl, and then Evelyn's face. Just the blown-out eye yeah. has stayed in my mind ever since I first saw this movie. Did not expect that. That might be partially why it seems. It, it's so horrifying, yeah. right? Yeah, it haunts me. And so, you know, it's it's a terrible ending for her. She dies. And then, of course, Cross gets the girl. Yeah. He gets his hands on the daughter and gets away with her. And Jake is left there having lost. And for a second, he seems like he's going to freak out about it. But his buddies come and lead him away, just telling him, Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. And that is the end of the movie. Uh, with the point that Cross gets shot in the, in arm, the arm and does not arm. react. Like, he's sort of. Small like, caliber bullet. He sort of like grabs his arm like a mosquito bit him. He's like, oh man, that's an inconvenience. Uh, well, you know, it was a 22. Yeah. All right, well, we can go shoot you in the arm of the twenty-two and see how it feels. But yeah, I, I thought that that was—I kind of laughed about that. His sort of like blank face as he sort of like reaches up and grabs his arm. So the original ending that Town had was that Evelyn would hunt down the father and murder him, and then go to jail. But the daughter would get away and then jake would be sort of presented with the situation where evelyn could probably go free if she just explained everything but because of the horribleness of it all she won't and so she just goes to jail and hmm. it's still kind of a tragic ending but a little bit more complicated and a little less viscerally tragic and satisfying. There's also a version of it that has Cross uh, less as a sort of villainous, uh, st a strong villainous character, and more as like a strung-out, drug-addicted, a loserish addict who they confront having sort of like uh, hallucinations in a bathtub. You know, and he's sort of like uh, a ruined addict. And that also, I think, is a little less satisfying. Much less satisfying. Yeah, that one doesn't track for me at all. Yeah. So are we... 
led to believe I was pretty sleepy by the end. Are we led to believe those glasses are crosses glasses? Yes. Okay, that fell off while he was murdering. Yeah, or present. Yeah. You know, I'm Moran. sure his, his in the salt goons water. did it. Yeah. Yeah. They drowned him in his pool. Cause his uh his pool and his house is salt water, so Well, yeah, at Mulray's house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Right. That, that's what I was thinking, because... Uh, yeah. Just wanted to make sure I had that correct. Yeah. But who cares? There are no consequences for a man like him. No, because they're asking this question just about sort of the rich getting richer, which seems also still quite relevant today. It is. Um, it's Chinatown. Yeah, they're always coming up with schemes and plans to buy our real estate. So, this movie had a budget of six million dollars do you want to guess what its box office was uh 120 uh not quite 29 million dollars oh i was going for inflation so, yeah no 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 that's contemporary so it still made money okay yeah on rotten tomatoes this movie has a 99 percent from critics and a 93% from the audience, which I'm not certain, but I think that possibly is the best score we've ever had on this podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was nominated for 11 Oscars, including the big five. Uh, it got nominated for Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Score, Best Picture. It only won one, the one I mentioned earlier, which was original screenplay, Robert Town. It spawned a sequel, The Two Jakes, written by Town and direct, directed by Jack Nicholson in 1990. Netflix is trying to make a prequel series about the origins of Jake's detective agency with Town as writer and David Fincher as the director okay i'm crushing it right now by the way uh, <laughs> i had no idea okay and then there's also a non-fiction book about the making of this movie called the big goodbye by sam wasson which ben affleck has acquired in order to try and make into a movie adaptation hmm. and that is all i have got about this film Robert Town is still alive? Yeah. I guess so. I mean, wasn't he? he he's he's got to be 90, right? Okay. 86. Okay. 86. All right. Cool. Yep. Still kicking. Great. Good for him. But yeah, Cody, let's start talking about what you thought about this movie. What did you think of Chinatown? I think that those scores on Rotten Tomatoes, as you know, weird as they can be and not totally reflective of truth, but uh, really do represent a, a truth about this. It's like there's not a lot to knock, you know. Like there's, <laughs> I, yeah, I really liked it. You know, watching a movie about sort of this hopelessness of, of struggle uh, while in a p- pandemic, no matter how far advanced we have come is is an interesting feeling uh it's a feeling i've had a couple of other different movies i've watched during this time yeah like i said there's not a lot of knock the cinematography is great i loved uh 
all of it. The the performances are incredible. I thought that Jack Nicholson was very toned down from his, from his later work. So it's interesting hearing this was his first leading role. I think that makes some mm-hmm. sense. I think it fits the thing. I don't I don't think he was underplaying it all, but yeah, it's sort of like as with Al Pacino in his later work gets that like hooah yeah. Al Pacino tendency Jack Nicholson becomes so much more Jack Nicholson exactly. as time he's, goes on. He's such yeah. so much less Jack Nicholson in this movie that I really appreciate it. It's really a character that he is making a character instead of bringing all the baggage to it of a Jack Nicholson performance. Although you did mention you noticing uh, Jake's fashion sense. That is something that they imported to the character from Jack Nicholson himself. He was apparently very much of a clothes horse. And they so they made Jake uh, very fashion conscious. The a Jack Nicholson trait. The cream suit. Uh, the Yeah, the sort of half belted back. The reverse pleat. The pinstripe suit. The gray pinstripe. Oof. Yeah, I mean. Faye Dunaway's look. Uh, Polanski took a lot of inspiration from his mother for her makeup, mm. hair, mm. and fashion choices. You could say the two people that deserve to be alive the most, other than the daughter, um, are dead. In Mulray, who's actually trying to stand up against this corruption. And, then- and also like apparently was a saint taking her in and yeah. helping to protect the granddaughter and yeah exactly yeah he turns out to be you know a, yeah a saint and then and then the and then Evelyn Mulray like those are the two people that end up dead and this homeless person who probably wasn't bothering anyone either uh and then you've got all these other people just alive and doing terrible things and that's chinatown jack it is i mean i yeah i did find that ending so affecting and the whole the whole all those themes of doing as little as possible and that's what chinatown is it's this mentality of where do you stand if you you know because clearly jake is not a bad person he's trying to do good but he also has been beaten down by this mentality that he knows is out there and i think it's fitting that it does end in chinatown the physical place it's another thing polanski added yeah i think it's it's woven in perfectly Uh, yeah there's so much about it that lines up every thread you pull affects everything else yeah you know it's it you know jake starts off the movie as someone who thinks he's cynical yeah and then at the end of the movie, he's shown, like, it is even worse than you know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My one knock on the ending is uh, it really doesn't seem like that bullet would have hit her. It seems like that they're just, like, firing into the night <laughs> at random Yeah, directions. no, it's a crazy straight. That's that's it's... one of the most tragic things about it is that she really shouldn't have got caught that bullet. Yeah. You know, like, they're shooting no these little snub-nosed they're... 38s. Yeah. Yeah. She should have gotten away. Yeah. But bad luck. And the screaming of the daughter, that's what actually is going to, more than even the face of of Evelyn, that's what's going to haunt me, is the screaming mm. of that daughter. Like, what a performance. Who is it? She's, like, not really in the rest of the movie. She's 
she's in it but yeah and then just lets it go really at the end there professional screamer because that, that's that's really quite inc- intense scream queen yeah yeah but all right well that brings us to the final question of this podcast which is whether or not you think the film is better late or never and before you answer well can we throw in one more thing we need to discuss which is my plot prediction oh sure it is not but, the episode of the monorail from the simpsons uh <sighs> Yeah. Just to, to close that bow. It is no con, man. No. It well, yeah, I mean they are conning. They, they you know it's it is about natural resources. Uh not uh roadways, which is what I had sort of been thinking. Um it, but it is natural yeah. resources, transportation, public works. Uh but very is this I didn't do any research. Is this Roger Rabbit? Yes. Okay. Roger Rabbit is what you're thinking. Okay. So maybe that's what I was getting this whole Simpsons uh, plot thing. A different sort of cartoon situation. Yeah, they were going to knock down Toontown to create a highway. Okay. So, all right. So I was conflating a lot of different things happening. Um because I also think that in that whatever the name of that cop is in Roger Rabbit is supposed to be a Jake Gitz type of Gittis. Oh, totally. Uh, so, yeah. yeah uh, I had a lot going on upstairs. <laughs> oh, that's cool. But to finish it out, yes. for clarity's sake, A Better Late is a movie that you feel like it's somehow essential to your movie watching bona fides as a fully rounded connoisseur of film whereas it never means that if you go your whole life without watching the movie that is just a-okay i think at this stage in my life i'm comfortable not being overcome by a feeling of hopelessness i think that it is this is better late though i find a label as those two it's better late i'm really glad i saw it like i said i enjoyed it thoroughly it is a good solid excellently crafted film yes i I will now be recommending it to other people and i'm glad that i saw it right on right on yeah like i said i like it a lot too it's not my absolute favorite film of all time but it is in my opinion the moviest movie i want to read the screenplay yeah i want to find the screenplay now and read it because it feels so tight yeah, I bet you can find and it. And woven together, yeah. And I wonder, too, if you would find the original town screenplay or the updated Polanski edit. Yeah, I don't know. You know? I, and I'd be curious to see them side by side. That's true, too. Yeah. Well, that is it for this week's episode, people. If you'd like to write into the podcast and share with us your thoughts on Chinatown or anything else that we've covered, please do. You can reach us at Better late than never pod at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at better late underscore pod. Please like, subscribe, download, leave a five star review, leave a comment, do all of those great engagementy things that have been better described on other podcasts, but I know you know what they are. Just do whatever you can to get us that 
sweet, sweet engagement data because it's very, very helpful. And other than that, I think we're done. So, Cody, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And I hope you come back again. We'll get you a wackier movie that we can make fun of next time. Yeah, not a lot Not a lot to, to joke about uh, with uh, no, incest and murder. No, not very silly. It's tough. Yeah, but next time we'll we'll do something. We'll get you like Troll 2 or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. I, I like Chinatown. And we will catch you all next time. Bye. Bye.